Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast. It's a place where we explore the world of horror in film, in literature, and popular culture. Well, greetings, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I'm joined by my producer and co-host, Tracy Asterio. This is episode number 18 of our Ghostly Gallery podcast. Hard to believe we've made it this far, Tracy. Welcome to another show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm starting to get ready for Christmas. I'm actually looking at my Christmas tree right now and putting up some beautiful lights. So it's it's that time of year. So how are you doing, Bruce? Uh, good. My family forced me to take all our Halloween decorations down <laughs> and make the transition to Christmas. So I love Christmas, but it's it's always it's always difficult taking down Halloween. Uh, I always do it with some reluctance, try to put it off as much as possible. But hey, you have to move from one season uh, to another. Uh, before we get to our guest today, and uh, her name is uh, Donna Marie Novak, author of a really fun book uh, about 1970s made-for-TV films and uh, TV series dealing with mystery. We're going to talk to Donna in a moment. But I do want to ask you, Tracy, to provide an update on our YouTube situation. Uh, you've made some progress since the last conversation we've uh, had, and you just recently informed me a couple of days ago that we're going to be debuting on YouTube in December. Tell us more about that. That's right. So I have gone through and did an edit. And currently right now on YouTube, you just search the Ghostly Gallery podcast and you'll find the YouTube channel there. Make sure to like and subscribe. We are going to be premiering our very first episode. Um, I believe it's set for December the 15th, and that would be at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So make sure you stay tuned. The very first episode is going to be Ansel Farage, part two. It's the most recent one that we've done. And a couple of days after that, I'll keep kind of trying to put as many up there as possible. But also just to let the listeners know that the live chat feature will be enabled. So you'll be able to chat with other Ghostly Gallery podcast fans at the same time as the podcast is airing. So it's a lot of fun. And um, I really hope everybody enjoys that feature. Well, that's terrific. December 15th, that's a Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can uh, watch and listen to the shows on YouTube. Uh, but for those of you that currently listen on Podbean or Spotify, mm -hmm. Samsung, iHeartRadio, you can also continue to listen to the programs there as well. So this is really just kind of an added bonus. And we thank okay. Tracy for doing a lot of the hard work in getting these programs up on our uh, YouTube channel. December 15th. All right, our guest this week is Donna Marie Novak. Donna Marie has written a really fun book. It's called Mad About Mystery, 100 Wonderful Television Mysteries from the 1970s. Uh, includes mysteries, thrillers, horror films. We're primarily going to focus in on those films that touch upon the genre of horror. But we'll also talk to some of the celebrities that Donna got a chance to talk to, including uh, Stephanie Powers, the late Lance Kerwin. Uh, the book is a publication of Bear Manor Media out in 2018, still in print and uh, a lot of fun for those of you who grew up with made-for-TV movies and series in the 1970s. Donna, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Bruce. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we are as well. Uh, right off the bat, I, I always like to ask authors about their motivation and why they decided to tackle a particular subject. I'm, I'm an author myself. I did a book with McFarland a couple of years ago in 2021 about horror films that appeared on Chiller Theater and other late night TV oh. showcases. And inevitably, the question comes up, you know, why did you write a book? Why for you... Was this a topic that you wanted to address? Uh, what is it about the made-for-TV movies and the series from the 1970s that really struck a chord with you? 
Well, first of all, I feel like there were really high production values in these made-for-TV movies of the 70s. And I'm a mystery buff. I write mysteries, too. And I had been watching all these, revisiting all these series like Columbo and all of that. And I've seen books of made-for-TV movies, and I've seen books uh, dedicated to different series, but I never saw a book that combined both. And then I wanted to get interviews with people who had been in the industry behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. And my whole thing is that I know when you write a book, you're looking at at least a year. So I thought if Stephanie Powers, if I can get her on board, I'm doing this book. Because I had liked Stephanie Powers since I was a little girl, and I had written her like a three-page letter when I was 11 years old. Never heard back from her. I was devastated. (laughs) So I contacted (laughs) Stephanie Powers' agent, and then she contacted me personally. So she was on board, and I I said, I'm going through with the book. And I knew it was going to be a really fun project, and I, I really love these movies. So, And I'm a big Supernatural fan of you know supernatural horror so i wanted to throw those things in there and that was a big part of the 70s was supernatural horror with hammer and and then dark shadows you know the the television series so a lot of the movies the movie of the weeks did devote themselves to horror and mystery and i felt like it all worked and that's that's how i got started on it when you did the interview with Stephanie, did you do it over the phone or did you do it in person? Yeah, we did, we did it over that. the phone. We did it over the phone. She was really, really nice. I told her about writing her a letter at 11. And I said, you know, things come full circle. Here we are. <laughs> I'm finally getting to talk to you. And then actually I was going to go to her show. This is what happened. She was having a show in New York. And and then it would have really come full circle. I would have been meeting her in person. But I wasn't feeling well at the time. And then COVID struck. So in a way, it was a blessing because <laughs> COVID, you know, happened at that same time. And who knows what would have happened if I had gone, you know. So but we did it over the phone. And she was really great. She was, she's a really interesting woman on all counts. So. Oh, wow. So Donna, when did you develop an interest for writing? Like how did, how did you get started in that industry? I'd say when I was five years old, it was, it was never a thing. Like I I felt like I was born a writer and I also draw cartoons, but um, it was never a question. I always, I always wrote and it was the, the thing I wanted to do. So I've been writing since I was a little girl, you know, I, I even say say in the book how I wrote over a hundred short stories by the time I was twelve and four books, you know, four little kids' oh books, goodness. you know, kids' books in your notebook. <laughs> you know, yeah. You have the notebooks from school. And I had all my friends in school writing, drawing. That was our big thing. And I'm into the arts. I'm into the arts across the boards. I did I've taken tons of dance classes mm-hmm. and things like that. So I'm I'm just a artistic type person. And writing is a number one. Oh my God. For me. Yeah. Did you happen to have any, any particular authors that you admired as, as a child to help spark this interest? Yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald was one of my favorite authors. I love Agatha Mm. Christie. Uh, Oh God, I have so many favorites. Frederick Brown. He's a mystery writer uh, who did things in circuses, carnies, um, Oh, God, there's so many people. I, I have a lot. And now Anthony Horowitz is a newer author that I found I really liked. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, I've got a lot of favorites. Okay. And I read a lot of old books, too, like Charles Dickens and all that. I read all the classics. And uh, I used to have a list oh, wow. of, of all the authors that I wanted to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I like horror, too. I'll say that. I like mm-hmm. horror as well. Nice. Oh, thank you for answering that. Donna, you were telling me in a note that you were a big fan of the books that I loved growing up. Alfred Hitchcock's uh, oh, Ghostly God. Gallery. Yes. That's what this podcast I have them. is named for. <laughs> I uh, have the book that, yeah. that's on your Haunted uh, Facebook page. Oh, yeah. I love all yeah. those books. I love the kids' books when they had, you know, stories. I, I have all the, the little anthology books, too, you know, where Alfred Hitchcock's, you know, 12, a dozen, a baker's dozen and all of that but i like his kids books that are illustrated and they're not not really kids books because they have adult stories in them but there's some of my favorite books i have i have them 
in my special pile, my special uh, yeah. <laughs> case for them. Yeah, They're, they have a, their own special place. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the ones that I grew <laughs> up with, my parents, I think it was 1972, they gave me Alfred Hitchcock's Haunted Houseful. And I loved not just the writing, but the drawings that you mentioned as well. Then there oh, was yeah. Alfred Hitchcock's Ghostly Gallery. And I, have I didn't get any after that. My parents, I, th- I think they were concerned. They stopped buying me these books. Uh, but I found out later there were many other books like Monster Museum, uh, Spellbinders in Suspense. Uh, I don't have all of them because there literally are dozens, some for kids, some for older audiences. Uh, but I'll tell you, those first two books, The Ghostly Gallery, Haunted Houseful, I have to admit, it was the drawings that drew, did, that drew me in first and then the writing after that. Was that how it worked for you? Oh, yeah. You know what? I always liked drawings, and I always felt felt like, why did they stop doing that for adults? Why is it that only kids' books have, have the wonderful <laughs> drawings? You know, I'd like to see that in, in adult books, too. You know, mysteries and everything like that. But yeah. I was, yeah, I was, I think as a little girl, the drawings got to me, you know, from starting from the little chapter books you had in school, where they had the beautiful artwork. And then sure. they had the little bit of writing. And I always used to think, oh, I can do that. I'm going to, I want to do my own story with, with, you know. Yeah. And we did the drawings too. My sisters and I, we did our drawings. We had our own little mystery books <laughs> that we used to create. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, in your book, you examine 100 made for TV movies and series all of them based on mystery, but within that you can break down thrillers, uh, supernatural, horror genre as well. Uh, So included in the book are a number of productions from the world of horror. And I wanted to talk about some of those movies. I mean, I'd I'd love to talk about all of them, but we have some time Uh limitations here. So I I picked out 10 (laughs) that were particular favorites, or in some cases, movies I had not seen but really sound intriguing. And I tackle these in chronological order. So let's start at the beginning of the decade, 1970, the movie, maybe not that well-known, How Awful About Alan, stars the legendary Anthony Perkins as a man who comes home to live with his sister. Uh, He's had an eight-month stay in a mental mental institution after a, a tragedy, And it's left him with blindness that may be psychosomatic in origin. Uh, Tell us what you like about this film. Uh, Obviously, Perkins is a great actor, so he adds a lot to the made-for-TV genre here. But what what specifically do you like about How Awful About Alan? Okay, one of the things I really like about it and love about it is that it's very shadowy. They do things like, you know, with the whispers, with him being half blind because he's... He's blind, but he has a, a tiny bit of vision. And the whole premise is that his father had died in a blaze and they kind of blamed Alan for it. And then the sister's disfigured and she's mm. played by Julie Harris. And of course, the great Joan Hackett is in it as well. So, I mean, you have the great actors like Anthony Perkins, um, who kind of was typecast after he did played Norman Bates in Psycho. So once again, he's a squirrely character. Um, I love, I just love the fact that it's this house with, it's almost like a a nightmare, you know, with the kind of darkness that he's Mm -hmm. living through. And then there's people going, Alan, Alan, you know, so, so it's that, that (laughs) just uh, these little things that make it so creepy and, you know, effective. And uh, that's what I really like about it. I I like the fact that you're really kind of drawn in and you don't know what's going to happen. Because you're kind of in the dark with him. He keeps seeing these shadowy figures that look like a wraith in front of him. And he's being haunted. Yeah. And then he doesn't know. He doesn't really know what's going you know, it's on. Unfor- does the audience. Yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate, Donna, that Anthony Perkins was so typecast during oh, his yeah. career. You know, after he, after he did Psycho, and he's phenomenal as Norman Bates, and then right. in the 1980s, he would do a number of Psycho sequels, and he was great in those, too. He doesn't get enough credit. Um, this role that he plays here, uh, you know, a guy coming out of a mental institution, I guess in some ways reminiscent of Norman Bates, but also a different character, 
but he was such a wonderful actor. He was capable, I think, of a lot more. It's it's too bad that directors, producers didn't give him a chance to branch out. No, I agree with you. Uh, but look, there's Julie Harris's in it, too. So, I mean, all these great actors, like when you think yeah. about it, people like Karen uh, Black and um, Patty Duke, they were A-list actors and, and they kind of got into the, the you know, B-horror films and they were so great at it that they kind of elevated them, you know? So I feel like a lot of people were doing horror movies. Uh, and Anthony Perkins, yeah. unfortunately, he, he he couldn't seem to get out of the Norman Bates thing, you know? Even with ha- How Awful About Alan, he's still a squirrely character. You know, he still has a little bit of a Norman yeah. Bates vibe going on there. So, and I'm sure he would have liked to have gone elsewhere, but, you know, it's... What can you say? It's, yeah. it's how he was became known. So you mentioned Julie Harris, a terrific actress, and she was so good in The Haunting about a decade earlier. Oh yeah, she was great yes. in that. And then there's Joan Hackett, who's somewhat of a forgotten name. I think maybe because she she got ill a few years later, she ended up dying very young. But she was a very oh, yeah. beautiful actress, charismatic, good range. Um, And and she's an important part of this film, too. Yeah. So Perkins, Harris, Hackett were really a great trio. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she was in the theater, too. So So she had a really uh, good reputation. Yeah. Yeah, she was excellent. It's too bad that she doesn't um, get remembered more often. Um, Another film Mm -hmm. that came out in 1970, and as I've written at my Facebook page, this is my absolute favorite among made-for-TV horror films. It's Crowhaven Farm. It's okay. a forgotten movie in many ways. It's, it still can be seen on YouTube, although it's a bit grainy. So it is my personal favorite. Hope Lang, a wonderful actress, is terrific as Maggie Porter. She's part of this troubled marriage. And then she and her husband inherit this remote country farmhouse uh, that has some terrible secrets uh, to it. Uh, I know you're a fan of this one as well. What do you like about Crowhaven Farm? I feel Crowhaven, first of all, I, I can never get enough of witchcraft in, in uh, New England. You know, I, I love that whole uh, genre of witchcraft in New England. But you have the fine actors again, like Hope Lang. And, you know, once again, you're not sure what's going on. And, and uh, I think it's Cindy Eilabacher's in that. And she's the mysterious little girl yes. that appears on the road. Uh, and she was really very effective, you know. And I feel like there's a lot of, I see a lot of Rosemary's Baby influences in this movie. Uh, that, that impacted a lot of, of films that came out after it, you know. So I see like a Hutch character yeah. there. And uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot in case somebody hasn't seen it. But yeah. the whole thing about her feeling like she's reincarnated as a witch is really an interesting uh, storyline. And uh, I, the cinematography, uh, once again, I, I just think the production values are really good. They're very effective. You know, they show the branches waving, yeah. these bare branches and all of that. Uh, I, I just think they did so much with what they had for these made-for-television movies. I'm really impressed. In fact, I asked Stephanie Powers about it. Yeah. I said, I love those locations. And she said they, they, they did go on location to these actual houses. You don't see that. You don't really see that a lot anymore. These incredible houses, like they had those old Gothic houses. I don't see that in, in movies that much anymore. So, and yeah. in this case, That's it's a good farmhouse. Point. Yeah. I don't know if you remember yeah. the first time you saw Crowhaven Farm. I have vague mm-hmm. memories. I think it was on the 430 movie on ABC television. Uh, they would have horror weeks or monster weeks. And so it aired at 4.30 on ABC. I'd get home from school. And the yep. first time I watched it, I watched it in one of our guest bedrooms. I was all alone. There was nobody else in the house. <laughs> and, you know, I was very young at the time. But I was terrified. By the end of the movie, I was paranoid. I was looking around. Are there characters around me? Are there people that are spying on me, conspiring against me? The feeling of paranoia from watching this film was overpowering for me. I don't know. Was it like that for you? 
I was really, I mean, we're, we were kids watching these movies. So, of course, you're really scared by some of them. And I remember Crowhaven Farm, too. It's one of the ones I really remember well, even from being a kid. You know, you were, were creeped out, all, all the, the creepy characters in that, that movie. And, and uh, you know, you're a little kid and you don't know uh, what's going to happen and all that. So yeah, I was really scared by a lot of the movies, but I, but I liked them at the same time, you know, cause I was a dark shadows buff. Yeah. So all this was, there's more witches, you know? So, you know, I liked witches yeah. and, you know, I watched it as a kid and then I hadn't seen it for many years. So I, about seven or eight years ago, I thought, let me see if I can find this movie. I found it on YouTube for free. I want to watch it. I want to see if it holds up. As an adult, do I still appreciate it? And as an adult, I wasn't as scared, but it was still creepy. It really held up. I mean, it. I don't know that I want to call it a classic because it's not that well-known a film. But when you define classic as a film that does hold up over 45, 50 years, man, it yeah. really does. Yeah, for me, they. I mean, when I did also, the book, I revisited of, everything that I profiled, everything. And for me, a lot of them held up. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of them, I, I would say, really held up well to, for me. You know, yeah. I, I, I love them. I thought they were great. Cast is very good. Hope Lang is outstanding in the lead. John Carradine makes a, a relatively small appearance as kind of a creepy caretaker. He's perfect for it. Lloyd Bachner, who did a lot of these films in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. Uh, it plays one of the few uh, positive characters. It becomes kind of a confidant to Maggie as, as her world is sort of closing in on him. But it's just a terrific film directed by Walter Grauman. Uh, I was mentioning the special effects in the film. Okay. Uh, that they're very simple, nothing fancy, nothing expensive, but they're effectively done. And it's still a very atmospheric and suspenseful and creepy film. I think it shows you don't need outlandish special effects to make a good movie. I agree. And and actually, I, I find them even more effective because they are simpler. You know, like I say, the whispering, the shadows, you know, showing the branches uh, moving in the tree, the bare uh, branches moving and all that, the landscapes. I mean, they, they tie everything together, you know, all, all the, uh, to make it very atmospheric and, uh, you know, CGI, I don't know. It doesn't, <laughs> a lot of CGI stuff, you can tell that it's CGI, whereas they did everything, uh, yeah. using what they had, whatever they had, they used it and it, and it works. It works very, very well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's jump ahead to 1971, uh, an interesting film and historically significant because it was Steven Spielberg's first feature oh, yeah. film that he ever directed. It's Duel. Traveling salesman David Mann played so well by Dennis Weaver, who would go on to play McLeod. Uh, Mr. Mann is pursued by a large gasoline tanker. We never see the right. driver. We really don't understand the motivation why he is so angry with David Mann, the character played by Dennis Weaver. Uh, right. It's um, it's a film, I guess, that showed the early potential of Steven Spielberg. This is a really good film, the Duel, and it, and it's a simple premise with it's ro road rage, but it becomes so much more than that. You know, like the the truck itself does look like a character. It's why they chose it. It looks like an angry character. So the whole thing is the battle that goes on between them. And, and you know, you can look on it as, uh, on several different levels, man versus nature, you know, uh, trying to prove his masculinity. There's so many different things because his name is man. So he becomes all, all men. Um, mm. And I just thought, you know, Steven Spielberg, you can see his hand how talented he was as a director because it's it's very exciting it's kind of nail-biting and with just that very simple pre uh, premise of a of a you know a, a, this person being pursued by this psycho truck you know he can't he can't seem to shake it and then they the, one of the things yeah. that was so effective too is that it's out in the desert you know and there's that location that the california desert and all of that so it's almost like he's a helpless person a helpless character being pursued by this malevolent 
thing, which is a truck. And 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 everybody knows yeah. what road rage is like anyway. So yeah, so it's a really <laughs> And then Richard Matheson. What did too. you think it's of Spielberg's short stories? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can't go wrong with anything written by Richard Matheson. Donna, what did you yeah. think of Spielberg's decision never to show us the driver? I thought that was a really good decision because it almost becomes like the fear of the unknown. You know, this thing is pursuing him. It's a faceless thing. You know, it's dogging him wherever he goes. And that's why it, it does go to all those other levels. If you saw the driver, maybe it would be too too humanizing. You know, you're seeing a person there and hmm. all of that. That's and right. without seeing it, it, it becomes a much more sinister thing. Like you don't see this, whatever it is that's pursuing him, you're not seeing who it is. So it could be anything. And that makes it that much scarier. That's how, what I think. So I think it's a good. It was a good decision on his part. That's why Steven yeah. Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, That's right. exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting how he got his start doing a horror thriller, mm -hmm. and before this, yeah. he directed a segment on uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. He did one of right. three stories that was featured in the pilot film with, with, with uh, Joan Crawford, who goes, well, she's going blind, she gets an eye transplant. And then while yeah. she has this eye transplant, which only lasts for 24 hours, there's a blackout in the city, in the apartment in which he lives. So right. we saw the potential from Spielberg and we saw that he obviously had a love of horror and that would continue later in the decade with films like Jaws. Let's jump ahead to 1972, Donna, a film that is okay. not that well remembered. It's called When Michael Calls. Elizabeth oh, Ashley, yeah. veteran actress, plays, plays Helen, whose ex-husband violates visiting rights with their daughter. So that's very upsetting. And then right around the same time, Helen starts to receive these mysterious calls from her nephew, Michael, just one problem, Michael, her nephew, died 15 years earlier. So this creates right. this mystery. You know, has Michael come back to life or is it somebody else? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a film of mystery. And you do mention in the book that in some ways the ending is predictable. It's, they, they try to throw some red herrings at you, but the discernible viewer is probably going to figure it out. It's still pretty creepy, though, and pretty darn effective. I agree. I mean, you know, I, I'd figured it out as you did yourself probably, but it still is really effective. Um, it reminds me of Hitchcock in many ways. Uh, the setting, hmm. the, you know, he's got the thunderstorms when they, you know, that whole B sequence, which I won't reveal for people who haven't seen it. <laughs> but a lot of that stuff just reminds me of something out of Hitchcock. And then, you know, uh, the whole thing about with well, the dark house, they have the dark house and then there's a Halloween scene where they've got the pumpkins they're carving <laughs> and all of that, you know, and uh, Elizabeth Ashley was very good in it. And we had a good, there's a good cast again, Ben Gazzara and Elizabeth Ashley and Michael Douglas in his earlier years. So um, I thought it was very effective. And in the beginning, maybe you don't, you're not, because they try to, they try to present some red herrings. You probably noticed that they had some red herrings that they were trying to, to uh, throw out sure. there. But, um, and you're kind of along for the ride. You're along for the ride, you know, you're going through the the haunted yeah. house with them. That's the way I look at it. The, you're in a haunted house with these people. So, you know, one thing that's also fun about these films, a lot of them feature big name actors who were not yet big name actors. Michael Douglas, very young. I think this is yeah. before the streets of San Francisco. Uh, so he's yeah. not well known at that point, although he is known as Kirk Douglas's son, but he hasn't become a big star. And, you know, you see the potential, but you also see actors maybe going through some of their growing stages as well. I think that's a fun aspect of these films. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Douglas. Well, he's he did a couple horror films, I I think Michael Douglas, but um in his early years. And then of course by Coma, he was he was getting more well known, I thought thought. 
Yeah, so. that came out a few years later, and um, it's a film that you yeah. never see on TV, but it's it's actually quite good. I want to say it came out around 1976 or 77, so a few years later, but certainly one of his early uh, horror films. These first few films that I've mentioned, Donna, I've, I've seen them all, but I wanted to include some films that I haven't seen, but that you have seen, uh, because they interest me for one reason or another. And the first up on that okay. list is a movie called The Victim from 1972. And it's right. one of two Elizabeth Montgomery films on our list. I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Montgomery. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why I picked this. I so she plays door. a character named Kate Wainwright. She decides to visit her troubled sister, Susan, apparently who's on the verge of a divorce. So Kate thinks something's wrong. She decides to travel out in a thunderstorm and goes to Susan's house. And she's a little bit surprised by the fate that has befallen uh, Susan. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this film. I have not seen it. Obviously, you have. What are the real strengths of the victim? Okay. First of all, I always think of how, I, when I see movies, I think of movies that might have influenced them. And one of them is See No Evil. I, I thought, you know, with Mia Fowler, if you ever saw that, where she's in a house, mm-hmm. and, and in her case, she's blind, and the killer is, is there, you know. Well, Elizabeth Montgomery goes out to this deserted beach house in Monterey, and it's like Alfred Hitchcock. They show you what's in the attic they show you what's in the trunk in the attic so it's like seeing the bomb underneath the table that's what alfred hitchcock used to always say the audience knows it's there so right away everybody's tense and she's in this dark house and she doesn't know what where her sister is we know where her sister is you know and the, the killer is in the in her midst so that's the whole premise of the movie and i mean elizabeth montgomery because she was in Bewitched, you know, a lot of people think of her as Samantha Stevens, but she was all a really fine actress. Mm-hmm. So she, her acting carries this mm-hmm. one. And then there's Eileen Heckard in it. A lot of people have, have forgotten her, but she was a really good actress as well. Um, Richard Durst, Sue Ann Langdon, um, she's in, in the movie. And, it, and it's basically Elizabeth Montgomery's show. It's her show. She's in this mm-hmm. house. You're, you're going along with everything with her. There's a lot of scares because sometimes she'll go down to that basement and everybody knows what's going on in the basement, <laughs> but Elizabeth Montgomery. So that's how it's, it's, a, it's like that kind of tense nail biter where you, the audience know what's going on, but Elizabeth Montgomery doesn't. And uh, that's the whole mm. premise of it. And she finally does start to catch on. Donna. That's the whole suspense. Yeah. The, the title, The Victim. Who does that refer to? to? To both sisters or just one? Do we know? I think it could refer to both of them. Um, her sister's really the victim, but Elizabeth Montgomery is a victim in her own way because she's going. She's kind of being uh, menaced by this person that she doesn't know. If, mm-hmm. At first, she doesn't even know exists, but she will be menaced by this person. So they're both victims. Yeah. So I think that's what it is. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote about in your summary of this film, you felt it was very reminiscent of the birds in terms of the settings. Yeah, that's I, I get that from from this movie. Um, and I can't I, I don't even know if I can describe why I feel it reminds me of the birds. Maybe it's the remote setting in California, you know, like uh, uh, Tippi Hendricks and Rod Teller were on that deserted house well it wasn't deserted but the house with all the birds around so it had that feeling of it you know there are animals involved in this there there's her sister's pets that are in in this movie and it just has it 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 has that hitchcock vibe for many reasons you know uh yeah yeah that's what that's why i feel like, like it reminds me of the birds in that way unfortunately i have not been able to find this uh streaming uh, I'm not sure how you were able to see it. Maybe there's a DVD. Maybe it it was streaming at one point. Now it's not. But uh, I'm going to have to get the victim because, uh, like I said, I love Liz Montgomery. Next on the list is one of my guilty pleasures. And I always tell people 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm not that proud of liking the movie, but I still like it. It's Satan's School for Girls. Great title from 1973. And it is really a guilty pleasure. It's very campy and very cheesy, but it's entertaining. Uh, Pamela Franklin, now <laughs> retired as an actress. Uh, she did a lot of very good films in the early 70s. She plays Elizabeth Sayers, who decides to investigate her sister's death allegedly a suicide. Elizabeth does not believe that her sister died from suicide. She believes her sister was murdered and she believes that something nefarious is going on at the Salem Academy for women. And it turns out Elizabeth is right. Um, As I said, campy, cheesy, but still a lot of fun. I enjoy this one. Your thoughts on it? It's a really fun movie for somebody who went to Catholic uh, school. Uh, this is a fun movie with the with the girls' school, um, <laughs> and I really like Pamela Franklin, who was in The Innocents, and she, another really good actress who tended to do horror films. Um, the thing is, they also picked up this this um, thing about cults that you found in the seventies with that charismatic leader, you know, in the school, and. And and it was very 70s, too. Like, there was the shag rug and it was burnt orange, <laughs> you know, the bell bottoms and all <laughs> that. But And then it had two of Charlie's Angels in it. It had Cheryl Ladd and Kate Jackson. Uh, and she was uh, Cheryl Stoppenhammer, Stoppelmore, Stoppelmore at that time. Yeah. But two of yeah. Charlie's Angels. And uh, it, another thing, you know, it's that effective simplicity of they're in the dark house they have the 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 gaslit uh lanterns at night conveniently the lights are out they have to go you know skulking around with their little lanterns so it had all that really fun uh you know and it's cheesy yes cheesy fun cheesy spooky stuff (laughs) yeah yeah you mentioned kate jackson who's really a favorite actress of mine I love um, how Kate Jackson comes across in this film. Kind of a duplicitous character. I don't want to give away too much. Oh, yeah. She's very young. She's not particularly well known. One of the things that really stands out, though, is in every scene, she absolutely towers over all the other actresses. She looks like she's about six foot two, and all the other actresses (laughs) just seem so tiny compared to her. Uh, it's it's yeah. a weird, it's kind of just a weird thing I noticed. Uh, I never noticed this in Charlie's yeah. Angels or any other films that she's done. But you could see that Kay Jackson at a young age was really a good actress. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's that whole thing about, you know, the the devil. It's Satan's school for girls. So Satan is in there. He's in the he's in the school. Yeah. Very just prominent. And of course, him. set in Salem, Massachusetts. Home of yeah. the Witch City, yeah. Donna, let's talk about story. another film that I have not seen. And I've been, I've been trying to find this movie, and I can't find it anywhere. From 1974, it's called Bad Ronald. Right. young actor named Scott Jacoby plays teenaged Ronald, troubled kid, bullied by the other kids. And then when he's sort of being mocked or teased by a young girl, he pushes her. She hits her head on some sort of a rock. She's killed. It's an accident. It's not intentional murder, but she is killed. And then his mother kind of panics. She's played by Kim Hunter, who was in uh, the Planet of the Apes films as Zira. Yeah, Kim Hunter. And she decides to hide him from, yeah, she hides him from the police, stashing him behind a wall in their house. So this is what I've been able to glean from the movie. Again, I have not seen it. You have seen it. Pick up the story from there. How creepy is this one? It sounds creepy as can be. It is very creepy. And the thing is, it's never a good idea to have somebody hiding in a crawl space. Let's put it that way. It's never a good idea. (laughs) She passes away and then there he is still living in this crawl space. And of course, you know, this other family moves in and they have young girls and he's Cindy and Lisa Eilbacher. And he's kind of watching them through the peephole. And that gets very psycho. You know, because you can see his eye, uh, you know, like the scene in Psycho. Yeah. 
So it just gets darker and darker and darker. And he, uh, I feel, becomes m- much more disturbed. You know, he's a, he's a shutaway. So he's a much more disturbed person. Yeah. And that's where it goes. It goes down that dark path. So, and then the people in the house begin to sense that something's up. And then you take it from there. And, and there's, yeah. I, to me, does he realize little, his mother has died? His mother dies, Kim Hunter. Yeah, and he goes on living there. That's but does he happened. realize that? Does he does he know that she's died? Yeah, well, he he does know she's dead, but he, he's he's been shut up in his little uh, corner, so he's kind of losing his own tra- you know track of reality in his own way. You know, he's he's. Yeah. Talk about an outcast. He's really shut in now. So, so that's, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. I'm not sure what happened to Scott Jacoby as a young actor is, is he good in this role? Does he, does he tackle it well? Yeah, he is very good in it. He, you know, he, I think he won an Emmy when he was Scott Jacoby. He won an Emmy, um, not for this role, but for something else he did. But no, he's very good, and 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 yeah. I don't know what happened to his career either. I I don't really know. Uh, I'm not sure if he's retired from acting uh, or if he still does stuff uh, occasionally. But um, I have heard that he's good as uh, this very disturbed and bullied character, Bad Ronald, as he's called. I have a good friend of mine who lives here in Cooperstown with me, Ron Visco, and we were talking about doing this interview earlier today. And he had not heard about the movie Bad Ronald, and he thought, oh, that's my biography. So he had, he had a good joke about it. He hasn't seen it either. Uh, so that was kind of a fun thing. Let's jump ahead, Donna, to 1975. And this is a film that's not fictional. This is uh, much more biographical, pretty accurate from what I've read. It's The Legend of Lizzie Borden. And again, it stars Elizabeth Montgomery, Right. Uh, she goes totally against type. You know, she goes from the good witch, Samantha on Bewitched. Now she plays Lizzie Borden, the alleged Fall River murderess, charged with brutally killing her father, Andrew, and uh, her stepmother, Abby. Um, she plays this wonderfully because she gives the character layers. There are times when we are sympathetic to Lizzie Borden, other times not as much. What do you think of Liz Montgomery in this one? Oh, I thought she was excellent. I thought this was one of her breakthrough roles as far as people realizing that she was more than Samantha Stevens, you know, and um, and I and I agree with you that she made the, the role layered enough that you are sympathetic at times. At times you're 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 not. Uh, but I felt like um, like with her sister, her sister was kind of on her side. And then there's kind of ambivalence about what might have happened with her and her father, you know. There's, there's all that kind of undercurrent going on in that movie, which, of course, it's a true life story. But I thought she was really very magnificent and controlled. So with all the different layers, um, I thought it was a really good performance. And it's a good movie all around. Yeah. It was, it was recognized as that. Yeah, it's really well it done. Yeah, very well done. Yeah. And it has some familiar names. Uh, one of the people that acts in this is Ed Flanders, who would go on to play a lead role in uh, St. Elsewhere. And uh-huh. then I'm trying to remember the name of the actor who played the father, who was an absolute bastard, for lack of a better word. Uh, was it uh, Fritz? Um, Fritz Weaver, was that his name? I'm not remembering. The one who played... Uh, the father played the father uh, in the movie. Yeah, Fritz Weaver. I think it was Fritz Weaver. Yes, yeah. Fritz Weaver. You're yeah, right, Fritz Weaver. And he's, he's wonderful cre- in this. I mean, yeah, he's he, yeah, he's creepy. He's, he's absolutely he's evil. Gives, yeah, yeah. He he gives her her more sympathetic layers too. Of when you wonder what actually happened, although it was a hor- horrific thing, you know. Yeah. Lizzie Borden took an axe, <laughs> gave her father 40. <laughs> yeah. What a lot of people don't remember about this story, she was actually found not guilty, even though many people, when they talk about her, they say that she was the murderess, not in the court of law, though. Yeah, I mean, 
Didn't you think, feel like they, they did show a little bit of ambivalence as to what happened? Because she was in, in a way so shell-shocked that you weren't sure. Yeah. I mean, you weren't entirely sure when that movie ended because she was so shell-shocked by everything. And then yeah. shot, she was... I got the impression... I got the impression that she did do the murders in the film, but in real life, she went to trial and maybe they didn't have enough evidence, but she was, she was found not guilty on the charges. But yeah, certainly in the film, there's at least a hint that she was involved in the murders of the two parents. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, Let's go ahead to another movie from 1975, Donna. Uh, This is one I have not seen. It's called The Dead okay. Don't Die, uh, written written by the great Robert Block, who gave us Psycho. Right. Uh, stars George Hamilton. That's interesting casting. He is a man who believes that his brother has been wrongly convicted in murdering his own wife. Uh, he starts to see this character, Reggie Nolder, who plays a zombie-like creature, Um is this a supernatural film? Is this um, is it is it a film that is more it based is in real life? Can you give us some insight there? Okay, it is a supernatural is. film. I was really impressed by the Dead Don't Die because again, these production values are really high. It's set in the '30s. It's really meticulous as far as recreating the, the 1930s. And George Hamilton reminds me of this old. 1930s actor John Bowles. He was starred in Curly Top with Shirley Temple. He's got that matinee idol look about him. You know, there's the Packards. I I, I see like influences from Chinatown in it too. Uh, the with Jack Nicholson yeah. and Faye Dunaway. I see I see those influences. There's a woman who who encounters him in the graveyard when he's investigating his brother's. Uh, death. His his brother is executed. That's that's the premise in the movie. His his brother is executed, and his brother makes him promise that he's going to go investigate, you know, and clear his name because he he feels like he's been wrongfully convicted. So he ends up going to Chicago, and then you see, and here goes Carnival of Souls. I see that influence too. There's the organ music. There's the Loveland Ballroom, and the with the the people doing the marathon dances, you know, that they had in the '30s. And um, he encounters this woman, Linda Crystal, who originally strikes me as a Faye Dunaway character because she's wearing, she's all in black and she's got the black veiled hat. And she's telling him not to go to Chicago. So there's all these really actually sinister or mysterious figures in the movie and it's in a shot in, in, in with really darks uh, like, like the Godfather. There's a lot of darkness in it. And I, and I feel like it, again, it's like a dark fun house ride, you know? Uh, and um, Re- Reggie Nagler is in it and he was the assassin in um, the man who knew too much. So he's very effective in it as, as this kind of sinister character. And what happens is that um, the uh, George Hamilton keeps seeing his brother when he's in Chicago and that's that's part of the, the the drama going on. Like, wait, my brother was executed. I saw that right with my own eyes. What is this? You know, he sees the figure of him, his brother constantly. So then he, yeah. he, as it goes on, you have to figure out what's going on there. And there's a lot of sinister, dark characters. And the title starts to make sense as it goes on, too. So uh, yeah. I, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. You mentioned uh, Reggie Nolder. Is he a zombie or is he a human? He well, here we go. He's kind of like a zombie. <laughs> I didn't know whether I should reveal that because that's that's going to be part of the surprises. But they, there's there's a zombie element going on okay. in the movie. And, and again, I, I thought of another movie, well, Phantasm. It also has shades of that too. I've seen so many movies that really? <laughs> I'm triggered by. <laughs> I say Carnival yeah. Souls, Phantasm. I see Chinatown. Yeah. But it's very good. Well, you're very like observant. Said, there, and the, there are always these connections. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Reggie Nolder makes a perfect transition to the last of the 10 films I want to talk about. And this is another personal favorite from 1979, Salem's Lot. It's a two-part film that delves into the small town of Jerusalem's Lot, 
This, of course, is Stephen King creation. The town is infiltrated by a vampire, Barlow, and his henchman, the diabolical Richard Straker. I absolutely love this one. Your thoughts on it? I think it's a masterpiece, personally. I think it's one of the best vampire films I've ever seen. And when you have James Mason, I mean, to me, that's the ace in the hole. You know, he's such a strong actor, and he's absolutely perfect in it. And Lance, David Soul's in it, Lance Kerwin, who I interviewed for uh, for, for my book. Um, and Lance Kerwin, his character, it's a great character, playing the kid who's fascinated by monsters. And then, of course, this is real-life monsters inf- infecting Salem's Lot. And it was Jerusalem's Lot that was the full name, but they call it Salem's Lot. So um, I think I think it's brilliant, really. Uh I, I see a lot of influences too on that one too with uh, with um, the Exorcist and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. There's that one scene like uh, where the the boy is at the window. You you know that where he's mm. he wants to come in, and Hammer had mm-hmm. done that with Barbara Shelley, where she was had turned into a vampire and she was at the window. Let me in, let me in, and 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 she's so beguiling that. You know, the guy falls for it. And in this case, Lance Kerwin, uh, well, I don't want to say it for the people who, who haven't seen it, but the vampire yeah. at the window, there's the vampire at the window. And I thought they had so many great characters and they did all the character. Um, they, they weave them in all very well. I think Marie Windsor is in that and she was great uh, actress from from the 50s and all, yeah, all through her career. She was she was terrific. But no, I think it's really good. And, and Alicia Cook Jr., he, he's another one of these really good character actors. You know, he's in Rosemary's Baby yeah. and he's in this. Uh, so one of the things I really love about these movies, though, is that they wove in a lot of um, of the, the actors from the, the old Hollywood system. I, I, I still feel mm. influence of, of the old Hollywood system in these made-for-TV movies. That's what I see. You know, even though it had disbanded, I just see the, the, those influences. And and you always found, you know, old Hollywood actors who were featured in these in these films. So. But I, I, I that's think that's a great a point real- you make, Donna. There, yeah. Yeah. I think I think your point is right on. These movies are in the 1970s, but they bring back memories of the 50s and 60s because of these actors who had long careers. In some cases, they're winding down their careers and they have an right. opportunity toward the end of their careers to, to do some meaningful roles and some, some interesting horror and mystery type characters. You, you mentioned interviewing Lance Kerwin. I wanted to talk about that. He was one of several celebrities that you were able to interview. You talked about Stephanie Powers earlier. Right. Uh, sadly, we lost Lance Kerwin earlier this year. He passed away in January. Uh, yes. He was relatively young, 62 years of age. Uh, I know. Tell us what it was like to interview Lance. Tell us about that. Oh, first of all, I was really shocked that he passed away. He was very, very vibrant. You know, he was living in Hawaii. He has five kids. Um, he considered himself to be out of the business, but he still had a little bit of an interest. He had an older daughter who was interested and he was really very, very meticulous about what he wanted to say. You know, in fact, he called me several times to add stuff, you know, so he was really concerned. And I love that. I love that, that he was, he really wanted everything to be accurate. And, you know, and he talked highly of the film of making this movie. Um, you know, we talked about other things, James at 15 and all all of that. Uh, but you know, I, I was really surprised because he was so, um, he was like a success story. He'd had his troubles with drugs in the past, but he was doing really well and he was very vibrant, you know, so it was, it was kind of shocking uh, when when I found out about this, about him passing away at, at a young age, yeah. you know, at a pretty young age. So, but, and he was really, really good. He was very, very articulate, you know, and he had been a child actor. So he, he had that whole experience that, that I thought was a good perspective to show in, in the book of what it was like for, uh, you know, you hear him talking about all these 
shows and the, the, the parts he lost out on. And then you find out he's 12 years old. You know, you're going up to the point where he's 12 years old. You know, so, uh, yeah. but he'd all, already done all that pavement pounding by the time he was 12. So I guess for him, it felt like a really long process, you know? So, yeah. yeah. You know, he, he does, he does a really good job playing young Mark Petrie. He's I think he's a teenager still at that point. Yeah. Uh, his parents have been killed. He's confronted with this awful vampire, the hideous Barlow played by Reggie Nalder. And yet he shows his character shows such courage he basically goes up to this vampire who is as hideous as you could imagine. And yeah. he just says to him, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and some child actors would do that and it wouldn't be believable. But the way that he says it, you think, yeah, he's really going to do it. And it was very convincing. I thought he did a phenomenal job in Salem's Lot. Yeah, I thought so too. And well, that's what made him. I mean, that's uh, that's why he was a, a successful child actor because he was really good at at an early age, and uh, and at this point he was in his teens and a very strong actor. He, you know, as a teenager, you know, he was just a good actor. And then, like I said, he kind of yeah. got got out of the whole thing, and uh, he had some interest to go back but i think he was living the life i mean he loved surfing you know he was living the life out there that was that was one of his big loves of, of being in hawaii and surfing and with his kids and being active in the local playhouse you know that kind of thing so um hopefully he was really enjoying his life and unfortunately i don't know whatever happened wasn't he teaching acting toward the end and working with yes. kids? Yes. Yeah, and he was also, he had been involved in helping people get off drugs and all of that. So, um, and he, and I know he was, when I talked to him, he was interested in his daughter having her shot. Uh, I think he said yeah. she was 14, I think, yeah. So, yeah. That was his focus at that point. Donna, one other actor I want to talk about, uh, Sharon Farrell. She also passed away earlier this year. Uh, she was in a made-for-TV movie, The Eyes of Charles Sand. She also appeared yes. in Kolchak, The Night Stalker, the series. And she did uh, a feature film, a starring role in It's Alive, very disturbing film oh, yeah. from 1974. She plays a woman who gives literally gives birth to a monster. It's uh, it's a tough movie to watch in a lot of ways. What did Sharon have to say about doing some of these horror roles? Was this something that she really enjoyed? What'd she think of it? I think she was proud of It's Alive. I really do. Because a lot of people, there, there's like a cult following around that movie. And I think she was very proud of it. And... Uh, Sharon Farrell was almost like she was like this wild chick in her in her heyday, you know, and uh, I, I felt like she she was very, very nice. I felt like she had a lot to say, you know, um, she told me a lot of stories. Some of them I didn't put in, in my in my interview because you can't, you know, you can't name names, that kind of thing. But she had some, you know, she had some difficulties in, in her career. She had some difficulties. And I feel like she uh, maybe had a little bit of typecasting too with her um, being the, like the beautiful blonde typecasting that way. But then she she found a role actually on Hawaii Five-0 as a policewoman there. So um, hmm. she did a lot of stuff in the 70s, though. That's one of the reasons why I approached her, because she was on so many things that I remember, too. And uh and and she I, she loved her career. She really did. She she really liked acting. Uh, I felt like she she was having a good life. You know, she she felt happy where she was at this point in her life. I felt like um, any any of her pro problems in the past were behind her. You know, and she seemed pretty optimistic. You know, and and in a good place. And I know it's alive. Yeah. I know that she really liked that that whole experience and and the little quirky things that they brought to it you know they all contributed in, in their own way to the movie you know it's all on, on a lower budget so 
it's it still plays a lot too. It's alive. You see it on television. Yeah. Sometime after you interviewed her, she suffered uh, an embolism, which I think made it difficult for her to speak. Um, and then she passed away in the spring. Although her death actually was not announced until uh, at least a couple of months later. Uh, she was in her 80s, though, did live a long life and um, had a pretty nice career, including some of these highlights from the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, that's the sad thing, though. We're losing all these great people, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was trying to get uh, Nita Talbot, the character actress. I, I don't know if you know who she is. And She was in Hogan's Heroes, but she was on Columbo, too. Oh. Um, a Stitch in, in Crime with Leonard Nimoy. And she was so effective in, in her little role. She had such New York character, you know, she had such a character to her. Mm-hmm. And I really tried pursuing that interview too, but, you know, I contacted her family. I had, I mean, it was like a detective <laughs> trying to track her down. I felt like she was in her 80s. Mm-hmm. And yes, with some people, they just want to be left alone at this point. So you have to respect that. But I would have liked to have gotten her as well to, to hear what she had to say as a, as a really great character actress of, of the you know, of the seventies, which was my focus in my book. So, but that's the whole thing. That's one of the things, one of my motivations too, to interview people, you know, people aren't going to be around forever and they're all part of these great works Mm -hmm. and you just want to capture their words. You know, I I have a big thing about that. I want to hear what they have to say. I want their memories preserved, you know? So I was glad I got the people that I did get for my book. I was so happy about that. And I was really glad to interview Sharon Farrell, who was very sweet. She was very nice. You know, I'm I'm, I'm really sorry about her passing. You know, this is a horrible thing, losing the people, losing these great people. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you've interviewed so many fantastic people in your career, Donna. Is is there anybody else that you kind of have on your bucket list to try to get a hold of and have a conversation with oh, to God. share there, it with the world. There actually are a, a, <laughs> a bunch of people, and I and and can I think of their names right off the top of my head? Um, I wanted to. I, I, well, another person I really wanted to include because I just think she's such a great gal. That's why I say it is Angie Dickinson. I just think she's got such a good sense mm-hmm. of humor about herself, and you know, I, I I really really like her. And I was actually, you know, I approached different people for my book, and the thing is that I had a deadline, mm-hmm. and you know trying to get everybody's schedules and getting it all together that you can't do everybody. That's, that's what it turns out, how it turns out. So, um, I, I even, uh, contacted Barbara Parkins, you know, I, I was contacting a lot of, a lot of people and unfortunately Tanya Roberts too. I, I wish that we could have gotten the interview because she passed away too. another shocker, you know, she was pretty, pretty young mm-hmm. as well. So, um, but I was happy for the people that I got. Uh, I am interviewing nice. Sean Young on Friday, so I'm I'm really excited about that. And uh, there, yes, there are other people on my bucket list. I have to think about that one. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, off the top of my head, who to say? But I'm sure there are a lot of people that I would like to to speak to. It's always a great experience talking to the people. These people. Like Peter S. Fisher, uh, no, absolutely. He, he he created Murder She Wrote, and we ended up uh, corresponding for a year after the whole book ended mm-hmm. because we would just send jokes back and forth, you know, that kind of thing. He was a really nice man, and <laughs> and I love Steph, and I was happy Stephanie Powers. There's my childhood uh, idol, finally talking to her and getting her to yeah. be a part of one of my projects. So I was really happy about that. Lance Kerwin, everybody, Diana Muldor, she was so very, very nice woman. Very, very nice. Well, Donna Marie, uh, final question for you. What's next for you? Any book projects in the offing? Anything else you're working on? Well, yeah, I mean, I always have ideas. I have a mystery character, Iodine Bell, and I'm trying to, to she's, I've done radio shows with her and short stories, and, and now I'm trying to do a... Um, a live radio show. I did one. I did radio shows in San Francisco. It was a, it was established troupe that did the Miss Bell mysteries. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get something going around here. I actually encountered an actress who I thought was the perfect Miss Bell. 
I saw her in something and I thought, this is Miss Bell. This is, she's, she's totally right for it on every level. So I'm trying to do something with that, you know, like one step at a time, you're just doing one step at a time, but that's in my, that's in my, uh, I, I, to tell you the truth, I'd love to do an expanded version of, of this book and include even more interviews, you know, if Angie Dickinson would relent, <laughs> no, you know, just try add a more people. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't bother Nita Talbot again. I think that's, she, you know, she's, she's yeah. retired and that's fine. I respect that. But um, I had Barbara Eden was on the fence. We were, we were trying to find a time for her too. Oh, wow. But it would have been fun to have Barbara Eden. You know, I grew up with I Dream of Jeannie. And, sure. Uh, yes. And she's in, she's in such fun uh, movies like The Woman Hunter and uh, – that I that I uh, included in the book, she did a lot of fun movies. So, and that's it. And that's it. I mean, well, I keep always us have posted. Of, yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah, let us know. We'd love to have you on again. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a lot of fun talking about your book, Mad About Mystery: One Hundred Wonderful Television Mysteries from the Seventies. Uh, it's a 2018 production, but perhaps there will be a revised edition in the near future. Who knows? Our guest has been uh, Donna Marie Novak. Uh, Donna, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been fun. I had a great time talking to you both. Yeah, we very much appreciate it. We want to thank Donna and all of our listeners as well for joining us in this Museum of the Macabre. And we hope we'll see you again next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>